negotiation skills can be used in any any area. If you learn how to negotiate specifically within kind of the climate change leadership world, you can easily transfer those skills in negotiating treaties, to negotiating financial arrangements, and then to negotiating your own employment contract. There are many really, really amazing and great negotiators that we can draw upon to really start teaching this critical skill in today's world to ensure that our voices are at all levels of discussion when it comes to clean energy, our transition to net zero and, and within the climate leadership world, focusing on the biggest existential crisis of, of humanity and that is climate change. And I think that indigenous knowledge is the key to solving our climate crisis. everyone. Welcome to Venture Out, a podcast series from Entrepreneurth that shares the brave stories of Northerners who are inspiring innovation and community well-being through business. I'm your host, Zena Cowan. We are fires across the tundra. We are ice of a million years. Our mothers, our fathers, Today, I'm talking to my friend Jordan Peterson, the other Jordan Peterson, who is a Gwich'in entrepreneur, a dad, and a passionate advocate for Indigenous communities, especially in the North. He is the principal and chief disruptor of Affinity North, which is a consultancy dedicated to empowering communities and fostering sustainable growth. The company specializes in negotiations, policy, governance, and strategic planning. And these are all areas that Jordan has dedicated his career to. He was the elected Deputy Grand Chief, Vice President, and Chief Negotiator of the Gwich'in Tribal Council. He was the strategic lead for nation building at Vuntut Gwich'in Government, and he's an active member on numerous boards so he really does come by this work honestly. In this episode, you'll also meet celebrated and loved Gwich'in elder Sarah Jerome from Fort McPherson, who is a leader in language and cultural preservation and was born and raised on the land. And she and her late husband, Freddie, played a big role in helping Jordan to become the person and leader he is today. Jordan is originally from Aklavik in the Northwest Territories, but now lives in Whitehorse with his family, just up the street from me, which is really nice. And he's a really active member of the entrepreneurship scene here and has also been a good friend and support to us at Entrepreneurth. So with that, let's dive in. My name 
is Jordan Peterson. I'm Gwich'in from Aklavik Northwest Territories. I was born and raised in the Beaufort region, former Deputy Grand Chief of the Gwich'in Tribal Council. Much international experience as well within the Area Council and other leadership initiatives. And I am currently President CEO of Affinity North, which is a consultancy that I own and run, focusing on negotiations, policy, and relationship building. Amazing. And Jordan, how old were you when you became Deputy Grand Chief? I was 29. Uh, Woof! Just a baby. Just a baby, for sure. Okay, we're going to talk about Affinity North in a little bit because I know you've been full-time since 2022, but it's been a very heart-centered project for you for a while. But first, tell me about your family and the people you come from. I always like to start with that. Yeah, for sure. I'm the father of four. Two older girls, two younger boys, 17, 13, almost eight, and five. Yeah, and busy life, but one of my favorite things to do and and favorite job. My oldest is entering grade 12 and about to graduate. And we're actually going to be graduating from two days apart, actually, from my program and her graduating high school. Wow. She's going to come down. Is she going to be able to come down to your MBA grad? Yeah, yeah. We're going to try to make it work. Uh, But if not, priority is always the the kids graduation so yeah so that's my kids uh, my partner erica he's a tram she's one tech witch from old crow powerhouse woman leader as well and has much experience within natural resources and, and comes from a, a family of aguichin leaders and yeah so just in terms of like my extended family i like to kind of bring it back to my great grandmother sarah and garland who's Gwich'in, originally from Port McPherson, but uh, lived her entire life in Klavik Northwest Territories. She married a Swedish man in the early 1900s, and she lived till she was 94. And I was actually um, the last person that she ever spoke to. And she had said something to me that that I hold dear in the way that I, I work and the way that I moved forward since. And yeah, that's been passed through my grandparents on both sides, and primarily my mom, who has been um, has played a pretty pivotal role in terms of my leadership, the way that I try to walk through this world, but also a sense of responsibility that she's instilled in me being an Indigenous person and, and being a Gwich'in. And Would you be willing to share what she said to you? <laughs> or is that sort of secret? Uh, not necessarily secret. I'll try to paraphrase without saying okay. exactly, but essentially... Um, it was just about what she saw my path being. And yeah, I try to reflect on that often and try to hold hold true to that. It's not always easy. And really doing things in a good way is not always always easy. It's, it's a hard thing to do, but you try and you make mistakes. You learn from it and try to move forward in, in a good way. Yeah, one of the things I've noticed about you, Jordan, is that you haven't taken the easy path and that a lot of the work you've done has been trailblazing work. And I know that you grew up in a clavic and that's where the first chapter of your life was. Um, For folks who have maybe only heard of a clavic, 
Can you paint a picture of it for me? At least the way it was when you grew up. Yeah, yeah. Um, my earliest memories were probably with my younger brothers and it's always having dogs and the instrumental kind of role they play in your life in the north, living in it, in the Arctic. Klavik is a very, very small community pushed straight up against the edge of the Beaufort Delta and the edge of the Richardson Mountains. So I grew up with Peel River as the the main source of water that we played in as, as, as kids and grew up in the mountains and fishing up the Peel and, and uh, the Husky River right below Red Mountain. An elder who just recently passed is John Carmichael. My summers with him were always busy and, uh, you know, cutting anywhere from 40 to 60 char a day and um, learning how to um, not necessarily just live on the land, but really survive and, and thrive. That's kind of the reality of small communities like the Slavic, where, you know, you're pretty dependent on government and government jobs and not a whole lot of opportunities. So you make your living in that cultural identity of being Gwich'in or Inuvialuit and de dependent on the land, on caribou, moose, fish. So yeah, it's also a community that was forcibly moved in the 1950s and Inuvik was created during that time because the Klavik is within kind of a floodplain. So yeah, that's that's a Klavik and it's a really beautiful place. And if you ever have a chance to just down on the banks of the Peel River and look at the mountain range. It's, uh, it's a quite beautiful place. And when I think about the work that you're doing today with Affinity North, the work that you did as Deputy Grand Chief, and the way that you approach parenthood, I wonder what sorts of teachings and values you would have been raised with to set you up to to be such a dynamic person in all areas of your life. Can you talk a little bit about those teachings and values, the ones that really stand out to you? Yeah, I think the number one thing, and I actually write about this in, in a forward for a book my nation did, is, is that the land has no prejudice. If you can't survive on the land, then it doesn't matter how much money you have. It really has no prejudice. And it is a pretty harsh place to live. It's one of the harshest places in the world. And our people thrived. You know, we were over 10,000 in our entire Gwich'a nation at one time. And that's spanning from Alaska to the Yukon to the Northwest Territories. That's probably the number one thing. And just within that, just the kind of respect and humility and, you know, the values of laughter and connection and relationship are really foundational to to my people, to the Gwich'in, and, and that's really, yeah, you try to live that as much as you can, and it just becomes a little more challenging when you're in urban centers like Whitehorse or Yellowknife or other places, but that doesn't mean that you can't practice those values and build relationships in those ways. Well, and if anybody follows Jordan or Affinity North on LinkedIn, because he's not on, he doesn't waste his time on other 
social media platforms. It's a distraction, he says. Um, I see you you constantly centering the importance of like cultural teachings and values in the work that you do and how you're building out your business. So tell me about Affinity North and what are the services that you offer? Yeah, um, essentially the way that I'm trying to build it is looking at my experience working in Indigenous governments, leading Indigenous governments and the kind of Indian economy, if you will, that's that's created around it. As a consultancy, I've turned down work and and primarily because I want to try to operate in a way where I'm not there just to fill a gap, but also to leave the skills that I have and the capacity that I have with the nations that I work with to ensure that me or no one else ever has to come back and do that job again and trying to trying to operate in a sustainable way and 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 be respectful of the self-determination of all the nations across this country yeah we really try to incorporate indigenous knowledge from the people that we work with the indigenous knowledge that i bring from my nation and yeah so we try to ensure that collaborative development is at the core of all of the services that we provide we're involved in negotiations we're involved in policy and strategy development supporting nations and understanding regulatory and legislative regimes in specific jurisdictions on specific projects such as energy and climate leadership and within all of that like I've said, trying to ensure that collaborative development is centered in all of the work to ensure that we are uh, really leaving capacity and uh, being reciprocal in that relationship and the way that we work. Yeah, I really like what you're saying about sort of imparting that capacity because I I feel like so often consultants, we rely on them and utilize their services as like a crutch and then they go away and yeah, we just, we, we need them to keep coming back. So I really like what you're saying about helping other Indigenous organizations and companies and governments and, and non-Indigenous as well to sort of reframe how they're approaching their work and really develop their own skills. Yeah. Um, so you've got this quite prolific background in government and in policy change work. And I'm wondering how you were prompted to like step into entrepreneurship and how you made that decision to jump into Affinity North full time and have it not be this like side project off the yeah. side of your desk because that's pretty that's a big leap yeah it's scary at times for sure and I'm sure every entrepreneur will tell you that it's not always certain where your next project's going to come from and really it was it was just the being our people right like as first nations inuit metis you know indigenous people across this country we are the fastest growing population we're also the fastest growing entrepreneurship across canada and just seeing the kind of creativity and and the innovation and the courage of friends that have started businesses or other colleagues across the country and you know organizations like the one that you're running really just serves as that inspiration that 
I just need to kind of jump into it and, you know, focus on the type of work that I really want to focus on. Because, you know, when you're in government or when you're in leadership, you're always trying to, to ensure that the work that you're doing is really reflective of your nation and, and ensuring that that sense of responsibility always comes back and being mindful of that. And you can carry that into, you know, into business and the way that you want to operate. And uh, we don't have to be this capitalistic kind of Western way of doing business. It, it can be done differently. And I think that's really missing across this country and especially within the private sector. I think, you know, the private sector, whether it be from mining to oil and gas to, to tech, are, are really hungry to want to know and want to learn how to work more effectively with Indigenous peoples. And, um, and I think businesses like mine and, and many others across this country, and specifically in the North, are really serving as examples and on how to do that and that they can support and ensure that government and, and, and business are, are walking through the front door of Indigenous nations and not trying to drag them along because we know that that relationship needs to be there. And we see that many major projects across this country don't succeed unless they have the support of the local Indigenous nations and communities. And that's just really paramount. And that's kind of where I'm trying to bring my business and, and building towards. And it's really exciting. And um, I also just have this like wanting to be really selective with where I'm putting my time and effort into. And this allows me to do that. That was a question that I had. Like, did you also feel after being in government that there were certain things or changes that you wanted to see move forward that just couldn't happen within that framework and that entrepreneurship was maybe the pathway forward? Because we at Entrepreneur, our whole theory of change is that Northern Indigenous entrepreneurs can become catalysts of prosperity and drivers of social change within their own communities. And yeah, everything that you're talking about, you know, you're a change maker. And sometimes I think people realize that entrepreneurship is the way to go to see those changes come to life. Yeah, it, it's definitely a really interesting learning process you know being in leadership being in elected leadership working for indigenous government it, it really um has shown me the passion that our people have to really make meaningful change and this the struggle though with many of our communities and, and our nations and our indigenous governments is that being really dependent on third-party funding to be able to kind of change policy or move forward on projects that the communities want to. And with this, I'm currently in the process of building a second business that's going to be focusing on training. It being really about how are we changing things and educating people at the highest levels of, of corporations, of, of government, of academic institutions but also it being totally dependent on the network that it has from, let's say, wanting to focus on something like sustainability or environmental assessment and creating a program or a course specifically around that. And the whole concept of the business model is about 
bringing in people that are experts in that and that the business doesn't necessarily have a full suite of full-time staff, but it being about acknowledging and sharing the expertise and the education and the indigenous knowledge of, of all the people that we work with across this country. And I think that's really foundational for me because I don't have all the answers. But I do have a really wide network that I can draw upon to be able to help support them in, in the development that and, and path that they're on, uh, while also trying to create meaningful change in, in, in the world. And yeah, it's probably crazy that I'm starting another business, but it, 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 for me, it's really about creating impact with the business that I'm creating and it being sustainable and very social oriented. Wow, very cool. Okay, so this training business would be about supporting people within organizations to get trained up on something specific, some something that they don't currently know how to do, and then keep that capacity within their team. Is that right? Yeah, and like, let's, again, coming back to like environmental assessment as an example, um, right. let's say company wants to learn about EA in the Yukon, you know, providing a, a course on that, that brings in indigenous experts from the jurisdiction, from the region, from the communities to say, this is what the current floor of that kind of legislation looks like, but that's a floor, not a ceiling. And that there's other ways of incorporating indigenous knowledge into that kind of training so that we are, like I said earlier, helping people walk through the front door of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities and nations, rather than it being an afterthought. I see. And then, yeah, just drawing on your network and also how how you sort of like process problem solving to be bringing in the right people to offer this training. I think that's great. Yeah, it, it's definitely a work in process and hoping to get there early next spring and have some initial courses over the summer and start supporting many of our our people of uh, being able to share their knowledge and you know from high tanning let's say to to how to collaboratively work with youth in our communities and and vice versa and supporting our young people and all people in our communities to be able to share their knowledge but also uh, possibly make some revenue and and kind of disrupt if you will the current economic systems that we have and the way that people are currently making money and um, yeah. Okay. I love that idea because I love thinking about you as a bit of a, a sort of bee pollinator. And there's such an art to curating the right spaces and bringing the right people together. And just because of your work all across the country, I know that you've got all those contacts and you've got a really strong vision too. I just wanted to invite you to share a little bit about those design thinking sessions that you hosted earlier on in the spring, which I heard about a little bit through you and, and from Ben, because I know that those workshops were setting the scene for some of the groundwork at Affinity North. And you hosted these sessions in a couple of regions across the country, right? And you were bringing together select thought leaders to workshop some ideas. Can you tell me about them and, and the purpose? 
Yeah, so I was um, awarded some funding around an idea that I've been thinking about for such a long time, having been the chief negotiator for for the Guichin, being that I wish there was like a, an indigenized way of teaching negotiations, um, because right now we have like a really straightforward, not necessarily straightforward, but the main way that negotiations is being taught is the Harvard model which is the interest-based negotiations. So I had applied for funding through NRCAN and uh, was awarded this funding to bring together Indigenous leaders, negotiation experts, government, academic people, legal experts to two workshops, one in Montebello, Quebec, and another in Vancouver. We brought together about 65 people. And essentially, the goal of these workshops, of these design thinking sessions was around the need for a Indigenous negotiations program being one that incorporates all the aspects of Indigenous negotiators. When you think of like a, negoti- uh, a business negotiator, it's really straightforward. They're representing a corporation or a very specific interest. And in Indigenous communities, a, a negotiator has to be a facilitator because they have to be ensuring that they're going to the community and working with individuals in, in the community. They need to uh, be community development officers. They need to be relationship builders. And for me, like the way that effective negotiators uh, move forward in, the, in, in these kinds of ways and, and are able to you know, really represent the clients they're working for is usually if it's a Gwich'in representing a Gwich'in community because you're able to understand the 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 details of the conversation you're having in the community and and all of those things are a part of the toolbox that that make really effective indigenous negotiators so yeah so we hosted these two workshops to bring together over 65 people to really think through what a program could look like and yeah so we're kind of that's the third big thing i guess that i'm working on uh, completely separate from the two businesses creating a likely a negotiation fellowship for Indigenous communities across the country that are working on clean energy projects or within climate leadership. Amazing. And I I mean, I see certainly how that project connects to Affinity North and to the other business that you're developing. And I'm really like hearing what you're saying about the need for there to be more folks, specifically Indigenous folks, who have sound negotiation training that deviates from the Harvard model. Why do you feel at this point in time in history, Jordan, that it is so critical for Indigenous community members and people in government to have these types of negotiation skills? Yeah, it was primarily from my experience at COP25. Having gone and participated in the Council of the Parties in Madrid, Spain, which is essentially where all the country states come together to negotiate Paris Accord and the implementation of that, and that there are too often uh, not many Indigenous voices in those discussions. And I think negotiation skills can be used in any any area. If you learn how to negotiate specifically within kind of the climate change leadership world, you can easily transfer those skills to 
negotiating treaties, to negotiating financial arrangements, and then to negotiating your own contract, your employment contract. And I really believe that this is a gap within many Indigenous communities throughout the world. And uh, there are many really, really amazing and great negotiators that we can draw upon to really start teaching this critical skill um, in today's world to ensure that our voices are at all levels of discussion when it comes to energy, clean energy, our transition to net zero and, and within the climate leadership world, focusing on the biggest existential crisis of, of humanity, and that is climate change. And I think that Indigenous knowledge is the key to solving our climate crisis. It's so interesting to be having this conversation with you after the summer we've just had with all the wildfires in the north um, and elsewhere too. And I, I know it's a really poignant moment in history for you to be doing this work. And I see you consistently centering your core values and centering your business as one that is northern-based. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you landed on the name Affinity North. Well, there's already another Jordan Peterson in Canada. and uh, <laughs> True. Uh, yeah, so um, we'll leave that there. Um, but it's reflective of the way that I wanted to operate, right? Like Affinity is essentially our relationship to things. Our relationship to the land, to animals, the interconnectedness. I really believe that the work that I want to do is about that connection to the values of where I come from, the community there where I come from, uh, the nation that I come from, and and really being strong in, in, in that way, you know. And I always try to give credit to an elder. Uh, her name is Sarah Jerome. She's a Gwich'in elder, uh, former language commissioner of the Northwest Territories, one of my most respected elders in, in my life. And when I had moved home to work for the Gwich'in Tribal Council as an intern, essentially, in 2013, December 2nd, 2013, uh, within my first minute of sitting down for a week of cultural orientation with her and her husband, she asked me, what does it mean to be proud to be Gwich'in? And, you know, 26-year-old kid at the time, um, not necessarily a kid, but uh, I, I really didn't have an answer to it. Um, it's a statement that our nation makes, but I don't ever recall having a conversation about what exactly that means with my family or my grandparents. Um, so she really put me on the spot and I didn't have anything to say, but Ever since, I've asked myself that every day. I've asked youth that I've mentored, and I've asked other Indigenous people and even non-Indigenous people across this country, what does it mean to be proud to be Mohawk or, you know, Nishka or, or German or British or whatever it is, because it takes courage for you to look backwards and bring all of your ancestors and all of those teachings with you to um, really build that, that strength in your cultural identity and kind of like a reflection of, 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 of all of that long-winded answer, but it's all connected, right?
Sarah, tell me about meeting Jordan all those years ago and tell me about the work that you and your husband, Freddie, did with him. So Jordan went out on the land with my husband uh, on the Dempster Highway. They're going towards Tikachik. He had a tent set out there. And uh, before he left, I told him, remember, you're going out on the land. It's going to be quite cold. Make sure you have enough warm clothes. He arrived at that camp wearing his little jacket, not very warm clothes. And so Friday, my late husband said to him, you're going to have to drive around and pick up wood and you've got to get snow and all the camp activities that to do, he was telling him. And so he really, really helped Freddie out by um, driving the skidoo around, getting wood, doing all the camp activities. So when Jordan came back to town, I went to the tribal office and Jordan came in. And I said to him, uh, one of the first things I'd like you to tell me is why are you proud to be Kuchin? Mm. And Jordan just sat there and looked at me and he said, I don't know. I said, why, why, how come you don't know? He said, well, I really don't know because he said, I used to go out on the land with my grandpa years ago, about 10 years ago, and he said, I have never gone out there again. So he said, I'm, I kind of lost track of my traditional skills. So I kind of walked him through our traditional way, how we were brought up on the land by our not only our parents and our uncles and aunties, but also our grandparents and um, the elders of the community and how they always mentored us how they always advised us, kept an eye on us, and if we as much as stepped out of line, one of the extended family was always there to kind of redirect us. Um, and then we moved to contact with the residential schools and how the government came in and how John A. McDonald told, told his civil servants that we have to take the Indian out of the child. And they proceeded to build the residential schools across Canada and how they really kind of, they did steal us. They stole us and stripped us of our cultural identity. So I was going through all this with him, and I said, this is what happened to us as a result of the intergenerational effects of the residential school. I said, we're now dysfunctional, and we need to heal. So I really, really had to teach him about what happened to our people. So I said, when you get to the post-contact, you're going to relearn all your traditional skills, providing you go back out on the land, providing you connect with elders, and you talk to them. So next thing I know, he's applying to run for the sort of vice president position for the GTC. And I think that was one of the major steps he made in order to realize what it was, what it meant to be proud to be Kuchin.
Jordan, I just think about what you were working through in your 20s, you know, being 26 and then being deputy grand chief at 29 and now being a dad who's doing an MBA and and running a business. And I, I think about all those like little moments over the years that have brought you to where you are and I think have set you up to be somebody that a lot of young people really do look up to like genuinely look up to and i and i just wonder like if there are any sort of standout moments that you really feel put you on the path that you're on now and that really sort of shifted something for you or opened up cracked you open like something that because yeah, I mean, a lot of people in their 20s are not doing what you did. Yeah, there's three very specific memories. Uh, the first one on December 2nd, 2013 with Sarah Jerome and her husband, Freddie. And then the second being a gathering in Whitehorse, Yukon of 35 Indigenous emerging leaders in an organization called Our Voices. Uh, which I co-chaired for a number of years with AFN, Regional Chief of the Yukon, uh, Kwadi Adamek, and, and many other leaders like former Vunpet Chief, Daniel Tita Tram, to our friend Angela Coe, to, yeah, just so many people uh, at the time. And it was a gathering that Katie, uh, who was a former um, um, a participant of this podcast, and and Kwani, uh, had brought together all these young people with support from Steve Ellis and others, and to talk about kind of you know the suicide crisis that we've all been dealing with uh, in many of our communities and the impact it has on us as young people. And uh, yeah, so that was January, I think, 2015. And really, I think we were all looking for that at the same time. There's very few people that we can have the kinds of conversations we had in our own community. That and the creation of our voices and everything that came after that and, and um, just is, is, has been really impactful to me and the relationships and friendships that I have with all 34 other people that were involved in that. And then Denny Naho, you know, it, it being an organization that really I, I, I respect all of the people involved in it and it really being like eye-opening that through our voices and the question from Sarah Jerome of what does it mean to be proud to be Gwichin to Dene Naho, that we don't have to wait for permission to step into our leadership. Yeah, those three memories I think are really impactful for me. Mm. We don't have to wait for permission. Yeah, and that I feel like it's such a powerful experience to be sharing space with other people at a time when just everybody seems to be on the same page and everybody wants to like share and sort of come to some solutions and and do some collective healing together. That's so, it's just everybody's right on the money. Like that's pretty powerful. Yeah, it really is. And it's not just happening here in the North though, right? It's happening all across the country, you know, this the eighth fire or the seventh generation or however you want to really look at it. I think that 
you look at like all the really cool projects around cultural revitalization and language mm-hmm. revitalization to our you know traditional laws our Gwich'in laws, indigenous laws across this country being revitalized and instituted within our, reinstituted and rebuilt within our nation. Um, A lot of it's being led by young indigenous people. And again, not waiting for permission and not waiting for colonialism to to rear its head again and and hold us back from from rebuilding and, 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 you know, regaining that strength in, in who we are and that, that strength in our cultural identity. It just, I think, is really powerful that you're now able to build a business around, like, exactly that. Like, there's a huge need that has to be addressed, but you also know that there are the people out there, particularly the young people, who are who are ready to do it. And I'm curious, like, now that you're in entrepreneurship with both feet what do you feel needs to happen for communities and economies to really thrive in the north and let's say specifically like indigenous communities and economies yeah i think more support for organizations like entrepreneurs more patient capital and more opportunities for us to gather and share ideas for me it's not just about how we're moving forward in this modern economy, but rather it being about um, supporting our traditional economies as well. And we can't support our traditional economies if we're not protecting our environment, if we're not doing development in a good way and ensuring that we are minimizing, mitigating, and removing any impact to any wildlife and we should be staying out of places like calving ground for caribou, for moose, for fish, for, for all, all wildlife, and that we should be doing everything we can to protect those kinds of ecosystems. Because without those kinds of ecosystems and without the kinds of support that Indigenous people in the North need, such as how we need to support those ecosystems, it, it really comes down to it being about that there isn't one way to support Indigenous businesses in the North. I had a question. I'm going to save it for the end. Remind me that I had a follow-up question for you. What are your plans for Affinity North? And how do you, Jordan, want to be growing as a person? Yeah, starting April. Well, I'm actually incorporating right now and bringing on staff in the next couple of months. But starting April 1st, 24, 20% of my profits annually, I will be pursuing creating a fund that's going to reinvest in other businesses, other startups to support them. I'm not exactly sure how yet, but that is the goal. Um, And I've been having some discussions with some friends who are willing to join that endeavor um, because uh, it's not necessarily being about just divesting. It being again coming back to the ecosystems that we're building, the support that we're building, and and the relationships that we're building. But also really thinking about the type of work uh, that we're doing and how we're moving forward, and that just being Affinity North and not the other business as well. I haven't thought through that aspect yet. 
yes, because it's untested. But I think really, for me, that's really foundational in the way that I want to move forward and think about my business having sustainable growth, but also it being about supporting other businesses. Amazing. And is this concept something that came to you as you've been going through your MBA, or is it just a piece of the puzzle that's been on your mind for a while? Yeah, just conversations with people like Ben um, yeah. around capital and access to capital. And it doesn't necessarily have to be something gigantic, right? And it being totally. about 3,000 X returns over 20 years, whatever, it just being about how are we supporting Indigenous businesses, but also how, 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 how am I reinvesting profit through the business and that being an aspect of it and it also me it also making me really conscious about how I grow my business and not too fast or not too slow and it being a sustainable growth so that I can support more projects across the country but not to the extent to just grow and that is unsustainable and I think an issue with the world right now. Jordan We've got listeners who are in business, who are connected to Indigenous business development, and who are just thinking about what it would look like to step into entrepreneurship. What's one of the most important lessons you've learned about being a business owner? Who's accountable? Get an accountant day one. That's ever Okay, you got to give... That's literally everybody's. It really is. Like, I wish I did it, Um, you know, but you learn. And honestly, it it is the number one thing. Like day one, have a bookkeeper accountant that you can rely on to help you think about your growth and where you're going. But like, other than that, I think uh, you don't have to jump into it right away. You could build it on the side. Yeah. It could be your, it could be your MBA, right? Like instead of, and, and I'm, you know, which is really funny because I, I play video games as well. It's my way to disconnect. But like, instead of playing video games from six to 10 o'clock, Think about your business or this crazy idea that you've always had and like test it. There's like, everything's so free. You can, you can watch a video on how to write a business plan on YouTube. And there's probably a million different types of videos on how to do it. And if you think that access to information is a challenge, I challenge you to Google your crazy idea that you've been thinking about and see if it's out there and learn. And again, the community's small, but there's room for us all. And as somebody who is doing his MBA, how critical is an MBA to you developing as an entrepreneur? Um, yeah, so I'm doing the Indigenous Business Leadership Executive MBA at Simon Fraser University. It's a... Uh, MBA focused entirely on Indigenous people, although there have been non-Indigenous people that have done it in the past. I'm in a cohort of 36 with, you know, all 36 amazing Indigenous people from across the country. And everything that I've learned from them, the discussions in the room, 
um, has been really, really amazing. But again, like if you have a LinkedIn account, go pay the $40 monthly fee and take the unlimited amount of courses they have. You know, you can learn so easily. And I, I, I really like, like when I think back at like my community, which doesn't have fiber optics, but everyone's now switched over to this uh, to Starlink. And everyone has high speed internet now. And if you look throughout the world, there are many ideas that you can work from home and uh, you can take school at home, you can educate yourself um, and you don't necessarily have to have and be dependent on government jobs anymore and that there's opportunity. And I think that's really important in terms of your professional development. And although I'm not even done my MBA, I'm already thinking, well, like what course to, or what thing do I wanna learn about next? And it's just really important in the sense of, you don't have to know everything, but you should bring in the people that have the expertise where you know you have gaps and being and, and doing that that self-reflection about who you are, uh, what your strengths are, and not being afraid to say what your weaknesses are. Yeah, that self-knowledge is key. And identifying, like one thing that I notice about you and Ben in particular is you're just really avid learners and you're just keen to go out there and to do that research and exploring on your own. And like great tip about the LinkedIn premium account. I feel like I keep disabling mine because I'm like not looking for employment, but I hadn't even clued into all the courses that are available. Like that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I have no affiliation with LinkedIn just to, just to make that clear. <laughs> you know where to go and get the supports. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like um, I have a financial management course next week. And one of the things uh, that I'm doing to prepare on top of the readings is like listening to a two hour financial management seminar on LinkedIn, just to kind of, yeah, get you thinking about it and uh, everything from negotiations to finances, to accounting, to bookkeeping, to, Systems thinking is on there, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, forty dollars is 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 a lot, and uh, maybe a lot more for some people. And um, but um, yeah, it's out there, and many of those same courses are also on YouTube or Google for free. So, Rad. Well, thanks for that hot tip, um, Jordan. My last question for you. This is what I'm circling back to. And it's a bit of a doozy, but um, just thinking about how much you've talked about the environment in our conversation, how big of a role it plays in your business and just like the, the larger ecosystem and just thinking about you as a dad who has, you know, um, teens and young adults who are growing up in this world, what hope if any, do you have for the direction we're moving in amidst this like climate disaster? As a dad and as a community member, what are your feelings and thoughts? Is it too late? I don't think it's ever too late. Indigenous nations are on the forefront of our path to net zero. 
look at all the amazing clean energy projects across the country, the majority of them are led by indigenous communities and indigenous nations and indigenous people. And, you know, that may be a small impact, but does it stop us? Does it, does it stop us that small community like Old Crow or the Gwich'in are leaders in solar and renewable energy projects? No, I think it being about rethinking the way that our systems work from it being a very globalized system, which has brought many opportunity. It now coming back to how are we building sovereignty for each of our communities and each of our nations, uh, whether that be through energy production, uh, food security and food production, and really trying to take more regional approach to And yeah, it's scary some days, definitely, especially participating in COP and seeing the way that the people that are supposed to be negotiating our future are, you know, wasting time talking about what they're going to name the session rather than actually negotiating the specific aspects of the implementation of the Paris Agreement. And as a dad, I, I have hope for this next generation. Look at what the first generation that haven't gone to residential school have achieved and our next generation and them knowing love and kindness. And then I think they will be the generation that brings us back to our relationship with the land. And if for all of those non-Indigenous listeners that think they don't have a relationship with the land, look at where your people came from. And we all come from there. So be mindful of that. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jordan. Yeah, it's been it's been really great. great you nailed it. <laughs> oh. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I'm so inspired by all the work that Jordan is doing, and I'm glad that we got to speak at this moment when he's making some quantum leaps with his business. And I feel like Affinity North is right on the cusp of taking off, and I know that we're going to be seeing lots more of Jordan and his work in the years to come. So definitely connect with him on LinkedIn, and you can also check out Affinity North's website, which is affinitynorth.ca. Venture Out is a production of Entrepreneur. Our co-producer is Travis Mercredi. Our lead researcher is Jess Duncan. And our theme song is called Fires Across the Tundra by Leela Gilday. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to Venture Out. Give us a five-star rating and be sure to share your favorite episode with a friend. We would love to hear from you. So please reach out to us through Entrepreneur's Instagram or Facebook. And we will see you next time. We are fire.